0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, colleagues, uh, friends. You're all very, very welcome here to the uh, Edmund Burke Lecture Theatre. It is such a grim evening. You are so good to come out uh, uh, despite the, the weather and, and the storm we're all um, anticipating. Um, it's really a privilege to welcome you all to our fifth annual Humanities Horizon uh, lecture. My name is Jane Olmayer and I am the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. Um, as is my, our, our custom, I always say a few words about the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is this lovely building uh, literally above us, the images behind me. Uh, we do three things in the hub. The first thing that we do is promote the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. And when we talk about the arts and humanities, we mean disciplines like history, the creative arts, English, religion. It's actually over 20 different uh, disciplines. The second thing we do in the Hub is we bring disciplines together and try and have conversations between the arts and humanities, uh, at the sciences, the human sciences, the social sciences, the natural sciences because we believe, actually, the magic happens when the disciplines uh, uh, collide. The third thing we do in the Hub is public humanities. Uh, We uh, believe that it's absolutely critical to take our passion uh, uh, for uh, uh, learning to the widest possible uh, audiences. And obviously, it's lovely to have so many people here uh, on that journey uh, with us. I want to say a word or two about the annual Humanities Horizon uh, lecture, which is uh, a signature event for us, Um, and uh, it really is an opportunity to reflect on uh, what the humanities have to offer and how we can contribute uh, to a wider discussion uh, and advocate for the importance of the arts and humanities. Uh, since the lecture was established in 2013, we've had a whole array of fabulous um, uh, 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 scholars address us. Last year it was Homi Baba but everyone to date has been a man. So I am particularly delighted uh, that our uh, speaker this year uh, is is a woman, and some woman, because we really are very honored uh, uh, to welcome Anthea Butler to deliver the 2019 uh, Annual uh, Humanities Horizons Lecture. Um, I'm just gonna say a few words of introduction, although uh, she'll be very well known to many of you. She is based at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a historian of African-American and American uh, religion. She's the author of many publications, but including Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. She's currently working on two books. Uh, One is a book on race, politics, and evangelicals in the late 20th century, and the other is on reading material religion and race in the early 20th century. Uh, Professor Buckler holds many awards. Last year, she uh, was an ACLS Fellow, the American Council for Learned Societies uh, Fellow. And that's actually when we first met because during that period uh, of her fellowship, Anthea came and visited Trinity, and we had an opportunity to connect in the <coughs> Trinity Long Room uh, Hub. Uh, this year, she's a Presidential Fellow at Yale Divinity School. Uh, And obviously another opportunity to continue doing the uh, fabulous uh, uh, research that you're doing, Anthea. But she's also a very sought after uh, commentator on the BBC, on CNN, the History Channel, uh, PBS, you name it, (laughs) Anthea has appeared uh, 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 on it. She regularly writes opinion pieces covering religion, uh, race, politics, and popular culture for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, uh, uh, and the Guardian. And I believe there's an op-ed coming out in the Irish Times. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, the others all pale in insignificance now. It's all about the Irish Times. Anyway, we'll look forward to reading uh, that. Um, as is our custom, there will be Q&A after uh, the lecture. Um, so what I'd like to do is to invite you all to put your phones on silent, uh, but do join us on Twitter tagging at TLR Hub and using the hashtag <laughs> hubmatters. Um, Anthea is very active on social media. Obviously, we're going to be hearing something about this. So it'd be lovely to get a Twitter storm going uh, this evening. Um, Tonight's talk is going to be a podcast and is being live streamed through our Facebook uh, page. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please join uh, me uh, in welcoming Professor Anthea Buckler to deliver our 2019 Annual Humanities Horizons Lecture on the topic, Irish Slaves in America, Myths, History and the Problems of Social Media. Thank you. Good
0: evening, everyone. Um, I want to thank Jane and Katrona and everybody in the Trinity Long Room Hub for having me. When I was here in December, I think I scared everyone because basically I held up my phone and I proceeded to use to Periscope our whole entire talk for about <laughs> 25 minutes and after that over a thousand people watched it and everyone was amazed because they couldn't believe that actually periscope can really reach a lot of people so thank you so much for having me and thank you all for coming out i have a little secret to tell you my middle name is deirdre my last name is butler so perhaps there may be some irish in me i've looked at my dna test and it's 13 percent uk irish whatever i don't know so we'll find out but um I know when you saw this title, you thought, what in the world is she talking about? And how can this be? And I want to set this up by saying a couple of things first. I may be the first woman to do this lecture, but unfortunately, I'm going to talk about men a lot today. But underneath all of that, I want you to also think about how this affects women. And if there are any questions about that afterwards, I'm happy to address them, because there's a sense in which the kinds of things I'm going to talk about tonight are always put upon men a lot, but there are women who are white supremacists too, so that is a preview of what is about to come. So, here we go. If you could see what I'm seeing up here, you can see a series of things. There's a Facebook page that says, Irish Slaves, The Truth About Slavery. There is a title of a book called White Cargo. There's a tweet from Carol Herbert that I picked up literally less than 48 hours ago that says, the Irish were enslaved before black Africans. The Irish slaves were treated worse than black African slaves. Let's educate ourselves before casting judgment. The other one down in the corner, which you may not be able to see says, from Appalachia Marv says, actually our ancestors suffered a lot more than yours. At the same time Africans were, selling, Africans were selling Africans, Muslims took even more Europeans as slaves. Before Africans, millions of Irish were taken as slaves. Maybe learn some, sh- you know what, <laughs> beyond our imagined victimhood. So let me tell you a story. Did you know that Irish had been slaves in America? I didn't, neither did you. The Irish slave trade was initiated in 1612 and not abolished until 1839 and that this concurrent transatlantic slave trade of white slaves has been covered up by liberal cultural Marxists or politically correct historians like me. (laughs) It was much worse than black African slavery Irish slaves were branded, they were beaten, they were subjugated, they were breeded, they were persecuted and beaten, and although they were made slaves they never asked for anything if you want to find more out about this you could go and get a book on amazon.com right now that's called by michael a hoffman a holocaust denier they were white and they were slaves published in the early 1990s this is the definitive book that white supremacists use to use this trope of irish slavery there's other books too there's another book that's published on nyu press a very reputable press this book right there white cargo with the cover imagery that's used on a lot of white supremacist websites. Now, to be fair, this book isn't by a white supremacist. What it is used for, however, is a a way of talking about Irish slavery, this trope. And this trope goes something like what you just heard me say, the Irish were slaves, They were slaves before Africans were slaves. They were brought to America very early. Cromwell did this. This mixes all in with your own history. And it has been picked up by neo-Confederates and white nationalists in America as a way to have what I call the victim industrial complex. Now, everybody's in this victim industrial complex because you have grievances, you have things that you need to think about that have happened to you. But this is a way for white men, especially in America, to be able to say, look, we were enslaved too. Why would we do this? Now, I need to tell you that I came to this in a very strange way. I came to it because I have been on Twitter for over 10 years now, uh, watching things on the internet. And I ran into somebody who was really great, who I'll talk about in a minute, Liam Hogan. And I saw his website and thought, oh my gosh, this is a whole thing. I happen to teach the history of slavery. By trade and tradition, I'm a religious studies person, but I also teach an in intro to Africana studies and African-American religious history. And so for me, slavery is important. So when I started to run across these memes, because I was looking at uh, right-wingers and what the, everyone called the alt-right in America in the last few years, I began to wonder where this came from. And I saw Liam's website and I just want to thank him publicly tonight for the work that he's done. I've been in contact with him and he couldn't be here tonight, but I want to say that what I'm talking about rests on the foundation of his work today. Part of that has to do with why this even came about in the first place as a way to talk about white supremacy in America. It came about in part in 2013, but it became really prevalent in 2014 with a certain event, and that event was the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Once that happened, this conflated a couple of things. One was this police killing that had happened which African-Americans were really upset about and the call for reparations. In other words, there was always been a discussion in America about whether or not African-Americans should receive reparations for slavery. If you know your American history, you know that uh, people were promised 40 acres and a mule. By now, mine is the, uh, probably the state of Alaska and with a couple of pretty pitiful looking polar bears because of climate change but um i digress at any rate this particular conversation became virulent on the web it went across sites like stormfront um, other kinds of sites Aryan nation and others and this meme was a way to be used to talk about this and so i want to show you a couple of things about how these memes are used on twitter this first one on the right this history lovers club is actually from an Aryan supremacist based website but you don't know that because it's a history lovers club so what they did was they took a lithograph and said basically African slaves were very expensive 50 sterling, Irish slaves were cheap no more than five sterling and most often they were either kidnapped from Ireland or forcibly removed they could be worked to death, whipped or branded without it, see more pics and you go into their website where they have an actual article about this which is all false, okay? Now, the other one is very different. You see this picture of these three young girls here? That's actually from 1900, <laughs> okay? So you, you're, you're getting where I'm going already, right? The first slave ship to the American colonies were 1619 with 100 white children from Ireland. Truth matters, and you can go look on this later on the website, white slavery history denied, covered up, and marginalized. Now, the use of these kinds of tropes and things serve a purpose. They draw people in on Twitter, Facebook, and other sites. They make you think that this is real history. And you go down a rabbit hole to begin to see how this can happen. Now, here's another one that's even good. News punch. This one recirculates literally every three months. Almost one million Irish slaves at the whisk of being scrubbed from history. That's really bad. You see everybody picking cotton, that's a scene from about 1905. Okay? So, already you know what the gig is. This one I particularly like on the other side. Why aren't Irish Americans in outrage? They were the first slaves and were treated worse than African-American slaves. Bet most people don't even know that. The nice touch is the Confederate flag at the back of it. (laughs) Which just lets you know that the Irish and the Confederacy, it all kind of blends together and it's gonna work out okay, right? Now, we're, we're chuckling because we know this is not history, right? But there are a lot of people who are on the web who don't know that this isn't history. They think it's real. And when they start to begin to study these things, the voices of those of us in the humanities are not there. We can't get past this because of certain things that happen. Part of that has to do with the way um, the internet works, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Part of it has to do with these sites are well produced and they look really good. And part of it has to do with it plays to people's feelings and emotions. And so while we're not in the conversation, these memes are a way to draw people in. They substantiate racial conspiracy theories. They help to push back against ideas about immigration and all of this. And so the way that this gets conflated, essentially, is that they conflate indentured servitude with slavery. Indentured servitude, you have seven years. We know that the Irish were indentured servants. After seven years, you're done. If you were a black slave from Africa, you were never done. Your family wasn't done. Your kids were never done. Nobody was getting you out unless you ran away and escaped. And so what happens in these stories is there's conflation between indentured servitude and slavery. Now I want to say publicly here that I know some of Irish history, you've had a terrible history that is no way taking away from that history. But what I want you to see tonight is that your history has been used for nefarious means. And that when you see these memes, that you need to understand that they are being used in a way to promote white supremacy. And they have being used as a sense to make people start to think about how they can assert themselves in ways that we believe sometimes are not the proper ways to assert your beliefs. To give you an example, think about what just happened in Christchurch, New Zealand, with the murders of Muslims there. All of that philosophy came out of certain kinds of white supremacist thought. Um, our president, who I will not name tonight, was part of that um, statement. Uh, Candace Owens was a part of that statement, who is an African-American woman who doesn't believe in white supremacists, but is carted around by people called the Proud Boys, who are white supremacists in this country. Go figure, I don't, I don't understand that but she's with them, she even came to my campus. So this is something that has really affected the way in which we have to start to think about what's going on. And so tonight, what I want to talk about is how we combat these kinds of lies and untruths on the web. And because I've been on Twitter for a long time, I've had an opportunity to experience this in a couple of ways. One is by talking to people as a historian And the second is because I've been attacked because I'm a historian. I've been attacked because sometimes when you tell the truth about racial truths, people get upset. If you tell a history that you think that people know, you become under attack. If you don't agree with the fake history, you become under attack. And so a lot of these things stem out of conspiracy theories that come out of the dark web and other places or are sitting right there with your Facebook friends in front of them in their homes every day and so what I want us to do is to try to get an understanding of that tonight and understand why it's important for the humanities especially the humanities to be involved in this at a time where universities are saying do we really need the humanities do we really need people doing this kind of work of history and literature and religion and all of this now more than ever we need it there are so many situations right now in the world that we need this kind of training and how to fight back if you think about all the major platforms right now, whether they're Facebook, WhatsApp, all of them are trying to combat how do they figure out what to do about the next election cycles in places like India or Nigeria or the United States. Who knows where we're gonna be in another year. And this all becomes important. And so people need to try to understand that. so what I wanted to do is just kind of show you an ecosystem here of what it looks like when information goes out. And I'm gonna point out a couple of things that you can see here, and hopefully this little dot will work, if I can make it work. I don't know if I can or not, but we'll figure it out. You see where that newsbusters.org dot is, that big, nice, aqua one at the top? Newsbusters.org is a right-wing website. They push a lot of falsehoods all the time. Notice that the Washington Post is a little bit smaller than that. That's a legitimate website. Infowars down here at the bottom is definitely a white-wing website. They like me a lot. (laughs) <laughs> now, what these sites do is like an ecosystem. They feed off of each other. So to kind of give you an idea of what it's like, it's like an amoeba that all of a sudden goes into Fox News. So at the beginning of the amoeba, you kind of have a blog that somebody writes. Let's just say, I'm talking about Irish slaves today, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody else picks it up. Then someone else picks it up. And then it gets to a place like Breitbart, or Infowars, or Newsbusters. And then, next thing you know, there's a Florida politician who's on the local news station saying, well, you know, Irish slavery was worse than black slavery. This is true, it happened. Okay? And so you have this this disinformation cycle that continues to go on and on and on, and this bad information goes everywhere, okay? Now, it's not just to say that it's bad information, it's inflammatory information at times. It's the kind of information that makes people want to do things, especially if they don't understand what's going on with disinformation and its spread. Let's look at another one. Here's how this spreads on Twitter, and this is from um, a truck uh, truck accident that happened last year, I believe it was, yes, in 2018, of a white man who actually ran over women. He was what was called an incel. If you don't know what an incel is, it's basically guys that don't uh, don't get dates and don't have sex. And they talk about it on the web. So, unfortunately, if you're one and you're here, I'm sorry, okay, <laughs> but um, anyway. So, this is the total retweet of one false account, and that's the top account. I'm gonna read this one to you. It says, Breaking. Witness to truck ramming and pedestrians tells local Toronto TV station that the driver looked wide-eyed, angry, and Middle Eastern, okay? And you can see that that is the false account in red. He got over 1,600 retweets for that. That was the false story. The real account was another eyewitness to the Young and Shepherd incident describes van driver as white, intentionally hitting people, describing it as a terror attack. That only got less than 200 retweets. So already, the platforms that we love to use are out there disseminating wrong information. So every time an event happens, whether that's the Notre Dame the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral or Christchurch, where the shooting actually was broadcast on Twitter, I was up that night. I saw it. I didn't want to see it. I cut it off, but it was already being live streamed by the shooter these kind of things move very quickly. And so what I want to talk to us about is how humanity scholars need to be ready for this, because part of this is about not just a sense of what we can do, but also understanding how the technology works and how to understand the algorithms, because the algorithms kind of mess up things a little bit. They skew things a certain kind of way. And the way that I discovered something about algorithms was about when I first started on Twitter. There were things I used to see all the time and then when Twitter changed its algorithmic thing in 2015, I saw less of certain kinds of things. What also started happening was that certain kinds of people were getting dinged more than others. Guess who those might be? We'll get there in a minute. Anyway, so I wanted to do a little experiment and show you how this works out. So I just pulled these out literally yesterday and started off here in the corner that says we're Irish and it says we're Irish Vikings, we're Irish slaves and this is from Google we're Irish slaves that's the second thing that comes up okay we're Irish slaves now depending on where that first hit takes you you're either going to come to a lie or you're going to come to a truth hopefully you're coming to Liam Hogan's website but you might not you might just start scrolling down and figure out something Um, something else I'm going to talk about the Crusades are the Crusades are also called holy. The Crusades are still happening today. Are the Crusades still going on today? Okay, so clearly something is up with the Crusades, right? <laughs> People think there's something going on. I, you know, I don't know. Islam is a way of life. Islam is my life. You go all the way down, Islam is questionable. Okay, so that's a little bit better. But still you can see how what's going on. The algorithm is picking up something, so I think the algorithm, when I use Google, now thinks that I'm a white guy, white supremacist guy, (laughs) because I look up a lot of this stuff, and this is what tends to come up for me some of the time. I get pointed to the wrong kinds of websites. And so this thing already starts to study us. It starts to figure out, hmm, you're interested in certain kinds of things. Maybe I should put you over there, right? And there's great scholars doing this work, but the way I want to talk about it is to talk about how it affects the kinds of work that we do as historians, literary people, all kinds of things that we do in the humanities that we think we're just doing great because we're in front of a classroom or we're in a classroom or we're teaching, but that's not the case. The dissemination of this information is widespread. And so my plea today, and I think that you all are already doing that very well here at Trinity, is to learn how to be public and there are many ways to be a public scholar and a public person and to get out that kind of information and to push back against the kinds of things that you will see that I will talk about today. Now, I want to talk briefly about three different things and then to come up with some solutions. So the first one I want to talk about is to talk about a very horrible event that happened because the way I want to frame my talk today is to frame it through one very big battle that's going on in the humanities, and that'll be at the end, but two really serious events that basically show how somebody gets radicalized, how the social media and the internet played a role in radicalization, and what did it do? And so what you see here with the 2083 and the Crusader cross is the European Declaration of Independence, and that was Anders Breivik Manifesto back in 2011 and July 22nd when Breivik came and killed 69 people on the island of Utoya, 55 of those who were teenagers, he had planned a long time for what he was going to do. Now I'm not gonna get into the mechanics of the violence, what I care about is the intellectual thought and where he pulled all those things from. So there were those of us on Twitter who realized once the newscasters began to talk about what was happening with Breivik and the kinds of things that he said we realized that we recognized some of the language. We recognized it because it came from certain kinds of bloggers. But let me talk about what he did with Christianity first. What you can see here on the left hand side is a sigil that he had along with the Crusader cross. He believed himself to be part of the new Knights Templar. That the Crusades were never over and that he was doing a crusade against Islam because Islamists, through um, immigration and others, were coming into Europe and they were being sent, as he believed, uh, to destroy Western civilization. So he saw himself as a person who was holding up Western civilization and even though he was killing white people, he was killing off the people that were, were going to be the future liberals who would allow everyone to come in. And so his kind of way of putting together this whole manifesto he had pulled on several places. One was this plot called the Arabia plot. Um, there's a person named Baal Ayor who is in the EU, we don't know who that is, it's a pseudonym, who said that EU bureaucrats had struck a secret deal to hand over Europe to Islam in exchange for oil. This was later promoted by somebody uh, in America that we know very well, Richard Spencer, part of the Proud Boys. You'll get to hear about him when I talk a little bit more about how that happened with Charlottesville and with the next person I'm going to talk about. Now, this idea about Islamification of Europe was not an outlier. This was also something that happened in America with Pam Geller post-2001 when people came against the, um, nine, what was called the 9-11 Mosque because they didn't want a mosque built near the site of where the twin towers were built in new york these kinds of islamophobia things flowed throughout not just a, a regular you know sort of what the newspaper would call a lone wolf but they also flowed through regular evangelical websites how do you push back against islam they're terrible people they're not christians they're not all of this stuff and it's also the phrases like cultural marxism that got everyone as well. Now, there was a big question at the beginning of all of this after the event happened about how do we take Breivik? How do we understand him? Mark Jergensmeyer, who is a scholar of, of religion and violence at UC Santa Barbara, said he was basically a Christian terrorist like Timothy McVeigh who bombed the building in Oklahoma in the 1990s. Now, Jergensmeyer was right only to a point. Breivik really wasn't a Christian. He was sort of a cultural kind of Christian, but he didn't really have any beliefs. He used Christianity as a way to think about what it meant to be white and how that was a sense of whiteness. But the person I think got this a lot better was Jeff Charlotte, who's a scholar at Dartmouth right now who started off in journalism and writes a lot about these kinds of things. He realized that the whole pastiche of what Breivik was doing was pulled from all these different websites, He took everything from different kinds of things like Stormfront, he pulled and plagiarized from someone named William Lind, who was a former staffer at the Free Congress Foundation, who started to write in the late 1990s about political correctness as a conspiracy theory to destroy Judeo-Christian values. Now, if you know a little bit about American um, history and politics, he worked with Paul Ryrick at the Free uh, Congress Foundation, as a director for a center of cultural conservatism that he left in 2009, okay? Now, what happened with Braverick was that he was able to go back and start to piece together his whole manifesto from all of this. Part of this was about not just something that he wrote, but a manifesto that drew on previous white supremacists all who were online. And he made that manifesto his. So when that manifesto finally came out, and the press began to look at it they couldn't make sense of all of it but if you took it in pieces you realize that all he did was cut and paste and he admitted to this he said this was easy to take from these different websites and to make a a PDF of everything that I wanted to say so the first thing we have to think about is why is it important for these kinds of people to make manifestos it's important because they want a historical record They want a record that is going to last longer than the record that you, as scholars or students, have put out on the web. They want their thoughts to be known. They are not, as the press would call them, lone wolves. You're not a lone wolf if you're borrowing from everybody. How can you be lone? We have to get rid of that definition of lone wolves because every time we say somebody is a lone wolf, even if they learn something from the internet, Basically, they're in conversation with people on the internet, whether that's through a chat room or they're having a conversation in their head with the people that they're reading. And so they can't possibly be a lone wolf. He's not. And all of his things are being referenced to this day. Did you know that he still can write letters? He can get sent letters every day and he can respond to them. He has computer access. The Christchurch murderer use him as one of the references for why he did what he did. And so these manifestos and these kinds of things become powerful. They're not simply memes. They're not simply stories on the web. They are sources of information that help to build people's ideas about what they think the world should look like. When I was preparing this talk I sort of had had a problem because this is one of the times I would say as a scholar was the hardest time for me personally. This is Dylan Roof. This is the man who shot non African Americans and the Emanuel AME Church in June of 2015. I don't like using his picture very much but I want to use it tonight to, to talk about something and I want to talk about how it is that people get radicalized off the web. Now there are two pictures of him here, one you see with the number 88 and a confederate flag and the other which you can't see very well are a few flags. One of those flags is the Rhodesian flag. Now why would a 19 year old know anything about Rhodesia when Rhodesia hasn't existed for a while? He knows about it through white supremacist websites and because he made his own website about Rhodesia and what would happen to all the white people. Dylan Roof is a different kind of uh, person who got radicalized on the web. He got radicalized because he sensed a problem which was embedded and part of it was about his ideas about the Confederacy, Southerness, African-Americans. Some of these old things are just old, old, old tropes. And so I'm gonna read a little bit of what he said, what he was interviewed. He told prosecutors, I have no choice in his um, statement, an explanation. I am not in a position to go alone into the ghetto and fight. I chose Charleston because it is the most historic city in my state and at one time had the highest ratio of blacks to whites in the country. Part of his reasoning was this, Negroes have lower IQs, lower impulse control, and higher testosterone level in general, the manifesto declares. These three things alone are a uh, a recipe for violent behavior. Now let me just take that piece and talk to you a little bit about where that comes from this is a 19th century trope this is part of what i work on as a scholar this is how black men were serialized after the civil war as being rapists and bestial one of the biggest things that i ever did that i as a young scholar was to go in the library where i was at vanderbilt university and find a book called the negro beast in the image of god published by a religious publisher that had a black man on the cover as a picture of an ape. This is exactly where Dylan Roof is getting this kind of imagery. The kinds of imagery that says that people are not as as good as white people, the kind of imagery that makes you hate someone, the kind of trope that would make someone go out and do something. And so he described what he did as being self-taught. He said, I didn't meet anybody. I didn't go anywhere. I read this on the internet. I read it at home. And even his black friends were like, we noticed that he kind of changed, but we didn't know what happened to him. Now, he had a hierarchy of races too. Very 19th century. He said, somehow if we could destroy the Jewish identity, then they wouldn't cause much of a problem. And that there are good Hispanics and bad Hispanics, but many of them are just sort of white, but they're still our enemies. So, in this kind of hierarchical thinking of of Dylan Roos, black people were at the top that needed to be eradicated. The number 88 is a sign for those who um, revere Hitler still. Um, Heil Hitler, because H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. This is how you show your white supremacist belief. And obviously, you all know if you pay any attention to America that we've had all of these issues about the Confederate flag, Confederate statues, and other things that have happened. These are all of a piece. They're all swirling around on the internet. So these kinds of things where a young man reads this and decides that he's going to sit in a Bible study for an hour and then shoot nine people is part and parcel of the kinds of things he saw on the internet. Now, I'm not saying the internet is bad. What I am saying is, is that you aren't there. You are so far down on the tube that nobody's gonna look for your stuff because your stuff's not interesting. You don't have a meme. You don't have a way to get to somebody. If you're like one of my friends, Kevin Cruz, who teaches at Princeton, you spend a lot of time fighting every day on Twitter with people who don't know history. You're shaking your head because you read his thing, right? Okay, and that can be really tiring. What I am saying now is that we're fighting because the algorithm doesn't benefit us. It's not, it's not skewed to. It's skewed to go after you as an individual and what you like. And what you like, if it's that, means that we're gonna show you more racist stuff. What the algorithm will also do is put you in a class. So for instance, if I'm a black woman, I might see more things about you know black women's hair or something like that. right? So depending on what I'm looking at is what I'm going to see. So how do we get people to start to think about moving these things away so that we can see something else? We'll get to that in a minute. Now, yeah. Here's the last thing, and this will be the interesting one for some of you. Um, some of this might not come out very well, but uh, at least I can get you this corner. I'm the infidel your imam warned you about. Um, the second one that's looking at the computer says, um, If you know anything about crusader history, you know exactly what that means. God wills it, okay? And then the books, you see somebody with a little um, mask on with a Muslim man down below. It says you're a heretic, okay? These memes are not normal memes. They come from 8chan. Now, if you don't know what 8chan is, 8chan is probably one of the worst sites on the internet right now. Because basically what they do is weaponize everything. If the white supremacist websites are, you know, weaponized in one way, 8chan is just basically—I don't—I I hate to hesitate to use this thing, analogy to say it, but I will—it's kind of like the Joker. You don't know where they're going to show up. They take everything and use it to push back against things, and so this medievalist controversy has become something of—I would say—a big problem for those of us who do are in the humanities and especially for medievalists because this raises a big question in and at least the case of Anders Breivik, medievalism was very much a part of the reason why he did what he did because he used crusader imagery this idea that you know we have to push back against Islam the idea that we need to make sure that this does not come and kill Christendom all of this is of a piece. I fuss all the time about all of my people in religious studies because they don't care about this. But I want to make them care because we need to care. Religious violence across the world is growing and part of it is because of what happens on the web. But I digress. So let's get back to these medievales. What HN chan has done is to use these kinds of names, and I'm sure you've all seen Pepe before. I didn't put him on here because I hate him. You've seen the pepe meme, that started off as a meme that people use for fun. That turned into a way to tell white supremacists. And so now, the battles that rage in medievalism are about two different things in the study of medievalism. One is, what do we do about the people who are using our history? How do they use it? And so this has become a great, interesting battle between medievalists who want to open up the canon to talk about um, medieval times in terms of race and gender and those who see that there's no need to do that. Now, I'm gonna quote one of your own historians here because I think she said it best. The battle, it seems, is also amongst our colleagues, Ruth Mazelkera said. Medieval studies always wants to be relevant. And she's the president of the medieval Academy of America. But now we've become relevant in the wrong way. Let me explain. One of the things that has happened with medieval thought and history right now is that this has become very attractive to white supremacists. If you notice some of the symbols, your own Celtic cross is used as a symbol for white supremacy. It's all over your cemeteries and everything else here, but they use that in a very different way. Whether it's to talk about the Crusades, or to talk about whiteness, or to talk about chivalry, or to talk about you know legends that existed, whether it's Arthurian legend or something else, white supremacists have been using these things to promote their kinds of ideas about what life should be and who should be in power. For medievalists, this has caused a problem. Part of the medievalists have said, we want to make sure that we are a part of this conversation. And this became a very big blow up two years ago with Dorothy Kim, who is assistant professor of English at a college. She wrote in a blog post that unless white supremacy was explicitly condemned by the overwhelmingly white population of professors who teach on this subject, it would continue to be used by white supremacists, especially those who are young and college age. And I quote, if the medieval class globally is being weaponized for the aims of the extreme violent supremacist groups, what are you doing medievalists in your classrooms?" she wrote because you are the authorities teaching medieval subjects in the classroom you are in fact ideological arm dealers neutrality is not optional now that seems to be a very you know inflammatory kind of statement but in a way there's a lot of truth there because what ends up happening is that these stories are being used and so if we're sitting in a classroom and you're talking about the crusades which i normally teach every now and again and I say that the Pope said God wills it and now we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm because I'm telling you stories that happen and a student raises their hand and says well doesn't that mean that Christians should have had the Holy Land anyway in the first place because that was Jesus was you have to get into a longer explanation about this but what if that student brings you something into the classroom that says oh no we we are still fighting the crusades today how do you talk to them what do you say to them how do we do this And so, what essentially medievalists are fighting about right now, or they're disagreeing amongst themselves about, is how do we do this? How do we make this work public? How do we fight everything? And so that's what the last part of my talk is going to be about, is how do we talk about this? Where are the spaces in which we talk about this? And so now what I want to do is kind of move you into thinking about what this little thing can do in your hand. Your phone. Your computer. All of those things. Consider that there are the way that the internet started, how many of you remember what Alta Vista was? I just want to take a poll in here. I want to see how old everybody is. Oh, look at that, okay, that's good. Okay, some of us are around the same age, okay. How many of you remember when Google came out? First time you used it, it was great, right? Okay, so we rely on these things every day. Your students rely on them. One of the things that has happened before is that you can now see how people don't know how to discern what's on the web anymore. So when Wikipedia first came out, it was very easy for me as a professor to say, don't use that because it's not going to be good. Okay? I don't know how you do it. Now students bring it to me all the time. Is this okay? Is this okay? I really can't tell. There's a part in the way which we think now that has been sort of programmed to consider things a different way. You don't have the time or the bandwidth to bring it all together in such a way. And so one of the things I think is happening with white supremacists and others who read these things on websites is that it brings you in because it's a rich story. It brings you in because it's a meme. It brings you into something that you don't have to read a 300-page book anymore. You can look at a picture. You can read something that's very short. You can read an article that says this is a five-minute read. You've seen those before, right? and you have all the information you need. That's number one. Number two, I'm obsolete. I don't know why you invited me. (laughs) Now why am I obsolete? I'm obsolete because everybody's a professor now. You can be a professor by just reading the web. You don't need me. I get challenged every day on the web. That's not true. How do you know that? How do you, you know, you have to spend a lot of time beginning to talk about things when you say something well well, islam doesn't believe in this you're like no that's a lie that's this happened somewhere else you have to spend the time to you know debate with people and most of the time people don't want to debate with you they just want to zing you on the web and now we have the addition of bots so think about this for a minute you used to be able to talk to real people on twitter now you don't know if you're talking to a real person or not it might be somebody's well you probably are talking to somebody but they're in russia or in China or some place in a troll farm, you're not even dealing with the real person. So you have to figure out, do I know this is a real person or not? So imagine being a 15, a 16, a 17-year-old trying to decide how to figure this out. We are at a critical point in which all of these things have to really be considered. And as humanities scholars, we have to begin to think about how do we get the information that we have the information that we spent years and years and years studying lots of money to do how do we get that out there how do we talk about it do we argue about this in societies right now this is a big discussion going on in the United States about how to be a public scholar people look at me because they think oh I've been on TV and all of this stuff I'm like no, no no that has nothing to do with being public what has to do with being public is how do you share the information that you have and I want to talk a little bit before we get to some questions, about maybe reimagining the humanities in this 20th century social media strata. The first one I wanna talk is robust participation in social media platforms for research purposes. You need to share what you got, okay? Don't sit on it. Those are diamonds that you need. You need to think about how you share those in certain kinds of ways. So let me give you a couple of examples. When we um, first saw and I mentioned this before, when we first saw that uh, manifesto of Anders Breivik, there were a group of seven of us who actually crowdsourced it on the web. We did it in real time. We took pieces and we started tweeting about it. And there was a whole tweet storm about what could we do with this and where were these pieces coming from? Every time there's an event that happens that usually has a religious connotation, whether that was Christchurch, uh, Charleston, I got one of the largest op-eds of my life because I was tweeting at two o'clock in the morning about Charleston and somebody from the Washington Post hit me up and said, do you want to talk about uh, this thing that you're saying about white shooters being called mentally ill and shooters of color being called terrorists? I was talking to people then about what would probably happen communication-wise, how this would be spun because I study media, okay? And so when that happened, I was able to write something up very quickly and get it out there and today that article is still talked about just recently when we had the shootings both in El Paso and another piece of Texas where that happened we were able to very quickly begin to understand where the young man who did the shooting in El Paso had got his thoughts from unfortunately I have to say that was not in a you know from someone who was unknown to all of you So you need to be out there, whether it's Facebook, and I'm not saying argue with people. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying to do this in the way that you see fit. Not everybody should be on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, but there are ways you can be. The ways that you can be are to just be able to share, I just did this paper on X. Today, right now, you're broadcasting me on Facebook Live. Hey, everybody. If you're out there, throw us a question out, okay? Because I'd be interested to hear from you. This is a way to get disseminate information. Because if you don't use these platforms, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't care, Jack doesn't care. That's Twitter. He didn't care. Oh, hello. <laughs> and you're not there. And so what, what's starting to happen, at least in the American context, and I'd be interested to hear from you here, is how society, academic societies are beginning to use this. My own biggest society, American Academy of Religion, we have a big thing every year. We're about 10 years behind and I will say that publicly because we haven't really figured it out yet and we have a society of nine thousand scholars who do religious studies and we're always scrambling I had to ask them to actually make a statement against white supremacy after a couple of other societies embarrassed us and made a statement before we did and so we need to be on top of these things as scholars that's the first thing more engagement with technological advances on the internet Um, I think it's really important to understand that right now um, some of these platforms are not being very helpful I'm thinking about Facebook right now who's not allowing some of their data to be out there so that scholars can look at it and there has been really important work the kinds of charts that I showed you here need to be collated Twitter changed its API so you can't pull down regular things very much from that API anymore I had a student who was working on african-american women this summer who's a sociologist and the kinds of attacks that african-american women received on twitter but because twitter changed this api in the middle of her dissertation she couldn't get the work we have to start to pressure these platforms so that we're able to get data so that we can look at it so that we can decide where are the places that we need to be you need to learn and understand how to have the right seo for an article that you have in other words, if your journal that you're writing for is some obscure journal, I don't know, you know, maybe it has like a couple of hundred readers or something like that, and they're not on the internet, and you just write a very nice article about the crusades and comparing the old, you know, 1060 with what might happen in 2060 and how people are going to think about the crusades then, that thing will never show up anywhere because it's behind an expensive paywall. We have to change how we do this work everything can't be behind a $500 a year paywall that only people who are on a campus can get to how do we break silos of knowledge and when I talk about silos of knowledge it's this I will use myself as an example I'm a religious studies scholar most of the work I do is 19th and 20th century American religious history I had to learn very quickly about how to talk about the crusades and all these other things because white supremacy is part of my research complex So I needed to go back and look at that and figure that out. I had to break through what was my traditional piece of knowledge to go through all different places. I also deal with communication studies. How does this get out there? How do we use the internet? How do we do all this? If you're not familiar with these things, I'm not saying that you have to be, but you need to start talking to your colleagues who are, because they can help you do this. And When I was here last time I talked a lot about what it meant to be a public scholar. And so one way to be public is to not have to talk to all the publics. You just need to figure out what public you need to talk to. Because that public might be the public that you need to reach. So I'll go back to the story about Irish slaves here for a minute. Nobody in America is paying attention to this except for white supremacists and black people who are upset when everybody says that Irish slaves were like it worse because they know what chattel slavery was. We're the only two groups of people that are kind of paying attention to this right now. You paid attention to it because you know that it's not true. I was at the, um, when I came into the country, the um, officer asked me, what are you here for? I said, I'm here to talk about Irish slavery. He looked at me, he said, that's not a thing, is it? <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. I said, you get an A because you already know more than most Americans know, okay? This is why people, divisions happen. If we stay in these silos and we're not paying attention and do the interdisciplinary work, then we cannot be effective to push back against these kinds of things. And there's so many ways in which this happens, whether we're talking about gender studies, sexuality studies, religion, all of these things. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot act as though your little space is the only space that you need to be in. Information doesn't move like that anymore. Cultivating and maintaining a public presence for the humanities. I think this is the most important thing because guess what, people don't read anymore and you don't have time to read I said that before but I think that the ways in which we do that have to be really important so what one of the things I think we can do that's something very simple is don't just spend time here on Trinity's campus even though it's a beautiful campus you need to be doing things somebody like Liam who works at the public library has done more work than many scholars I know who are sitting with lots of accolades and degrees and why is that because he's been online He's pushed against people, he's written op-eds, he's done things. There are many ways to be public. Not everybody has to do a TV show, you don't have to do all that, but you have to maintain some type of a public presence. And if you don't know how to do that, then you know you all can invite me back and I'll help train you. (laughs) And you don't have to do that. You got plenty of good people here that can do it. But this is really important because I believe that the humanities are in a vacuum. We're in a vacuum because we pay attention to the things we want to pay attention to. And we don't look at the world and we don't put the connections together between Modi and we don't put the, you know, the tensions between what's going on in South Africa where Nigerians are getting kicked out. And we don't put this together with, you know, the American administration or Brexit, which is going to affect you really soon because it has a religious component too, unfortunately. All the immigration things that are happening here in the EU right now, if we begin to talk to each other across lines you can start to see the ways in which these things are fitting together right now in the world our number one problem the number one issue we have right now is author- well actually two authoritarianism and immigration that's it i mean if you think about everything that's going on in the world whether we're talking about chinese and uyghurs whether we're talking about you know italy and the problems that they have had whether we're talking about you know india and narendra modi cutting off half of Pakistan I I can go on these all these things are of a piece and they're moving the way that they are and they're locking together like Legos because of the Internet because people see each other and they see what they're doing fighting cutbacks and downscaling of the teaching and humanistic disciplines and this is the most important thing the first place people start to cut is like well you don't need to have this course you don't need to have a western civ course and you know i have students argue with me and say well why do i need western civilization I said because it's the clothesline you can hang everything from and that may seem very strange for a black woman to say but it is the truth you can hang so much on that clothesline it doesn't mean that you got to teach western civ like you know one of the old guys used to teach forgive me all old men in here <laughs> but you need to think about new ways to refresh what what is the canon And how to let other things into the canon. This argument right now that's going on between medievalists of color and the regular medievalist society is an important one because it's going to change the way that medieval studies are done. There was a moment where in the 1980s medieval studies changed in religion because people started to think about Judith Butler and Carolyn Walker Bonham and others because they started to talk about the body. You know, there's always a trend within the humanistic studies where we start to think about different things where we are right now is a crucial moment because we have to start to inject things like race and white people have race and even though race is a, is a construct it's a construct that's killing us all and we have to begin to think about that and we have to tell people who are running things and looking at budgets that we don't need to downsize during this time that a matter of fact this is a time that we begin to ramp up and not only do you ramp up you start to partner with other organizations we need to do more work with technology. I, I can't say this enough, to say that you know what is happening in Silicon Valley and other places might be good if they had like about three or four humanists sitting there every day alongside the tech guys to think about what this is going to look like if we come together and start to think about what are these structures that you're building on the web? How are you looking at Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and all these things that you just want to mash us up and make us into data? What happens to that data? What is what are you constructing and making people think about and do because of that? What happens when somebody gets radicalized and they sit and they read the same thing over and over and over again? Or as the, the the thing that I like to use is what happens to you if you watch Fox News for ten years? You have horrible holidays. And then finally, and this is the one I think is really most important, is to train students to recognize imbalances. Um one of the big conversations we're having right now, and I only say it's a big conversation because one side is pushing and the other side is going, This is not true, is the conversation about whether you can be a conservative in a university or not. I will tell you that the answer is yes, you can be. What I would say also, however, is that you can't be a dumb conservative. <laughs> what I mean by that is this: you can't be a dumb conservative because you have to be able to think. And so what happens most of the time is that now we have in the American context, we have organizations like Campus Reform and all these other things who wanna you know talk about professors like me to say, to use the kinds of words, cultural Marxism, liberal, all these other things, because we want to teach straight from history. We wanna talk about what that history is, the contours of that history, how it's different. If we don't teach students that it's okay to stretch out and think, then we've missed something we've missed something about the humanities that's really important because the humanities is what gives us the creativity in life that we have when i got asked to do this lecture all i could think about was i don't know that i could have been a tech person i don't think i would have ever been a tech person i grew up reading crazy books between barbara cartland and um, yeah, i know it's terrible right and those of you who know who barbara cartland is and the decline and fall of the roman empire that opened up worlds for me as a young girl in texas that I would have never gotten otherwise. And so I look at my students today and I go, well, what did you do? And they're like, well, after school, I had to do like soccer and I had to do this and I had to do this and I had to do this, right? There was was not a space for them to think about anything. Everything is handed to them here. Everything is a meme. Everything is funny. And I'm not against memes. Don't get me wrong. I, I like a good meme. What I don't like is the fact that our thinking has become shorthand our thinking has become truncated and there's a moment in which we have to use these tools but we also need to step back from these tools and realize that these tools are shaping our souls and they're shaping our souls in certain kinds of ways and for some people that shaping is dangerous for for young men who don't you know have a lot to hope for or they see themselves as not being viable in today's society, or they think somebody like me is taking their place, what they are thinking about now is how can I get back on top? And so an Irish slave meme might be the thing that leads them in a year or two to go shoot nine people in a church, or to go take somebody out on the island, or to go into a Walmart and shoot everybody. I could go on. I mean, you, you know America's a mess right now. But what I'm saying to you is this. Begin to consider how the humanities can really shape things. The stories that we know, the basic framework of what the humanities are, whether we're talking about the arts, music, history, literature, all of these things are being used by other people to make them turn into something that they should not be, or they, or they could be and they shouldn't be. And I want you to consider today that all of us have a responsibility to engage this era. We can no longer say that, you know, I just want to be a Luddite and I don't want to be on the internet and I just want to write my stuff in my office. No, because you don't know that the thing that you're writing one day might become the thing that somebody latches onto and uses it for nefarious means. Thank you.